Welcome to Tales Told Whenever I Feel Like It. I'm Tim Prossel. I've got a story for you today that's written by myself. It appeared in a collection called The Book of Carnacki. Now, Thomas Carnacki is one of the great occult detective characters. He was created by a writer named William Hope Hodgson. Hodgson's stories appeared in the 1910s, and The Book of Carnacki is a much more recent publication in which a diversity of writers tell brand new adventures featuring Hodgson's Carnacki. On occasion, these kinds of stories are called pastiches. For instance, there are hundreds and hundreds of pastiches featuring Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, but they're not written by Arthur Conan Doyle. Speaking of Sherlock Holmes, his faithful biographer, Dr. Watson, and his shadow both show up in this story, titled The Least Haunted House in Wales. John, silence! Carnacki glared at his guest. That guest, Dr. John H. Watson, shrunk into his seat, his hands and lips assuming a series of preparatory positions as if the man were eager to, yet equally eager not to, respond to our host's outburst. After a moment of discomfort, I submitted... I believe the old boy is attempting to apologize for only now learning what those of us who regularly attend these after-dinner narrations have learnt long ago. That is, to stifle our compulsion to express amazement, enchantment, even borderline disbelief whilst hearing about your adventures. Uh, exactly, stammered Dr. Watson. I was merely reacting to your claim of the place being the least haunted house in Wales, not the most haunted. You see, when I hear of similar matters during my conversations with, um, the other, um, detective, mm. by which I mean the other... Yes, yes, spit Karnacki, we know who you mean. Well, he rather enjoys the dialogue of it, you see. The verbal exchange says it helps him to sort the business out in his mind. He once called me a conductor of light, though not luminous myself. So naturally, I've gotten into the habit of... I am not the other detective, declared Carnacki, his glare reigniting. Of course, sir, of course. I shall endeavor to, as you say, maintain silence. Carnacki shifted his glare at me, even though I was not the one responsible for having invited the doctor. I looked to Taylor, the guilty party, and he was carefully observing a spider cross the ceiling, though I knew there was no spider actually there. I then shifted my eyes to Arkwright. He was smirking at his cigar. Next, Jessup. The weight with which his chin pressed downward upon his palm suggested he might be posing for an illustrator's portrait titled Sheer Boredom. As I was saying, resumed Carnacki, the house belonged to Mr. Abner Nicholas, a confectioner in Carmarthen. The manifestation there, however, was certainly not why I accepted the case, for, if truth be told, it was far too insignificant to merit my attention. Too insignificant? whispered Watson. He then clamped his lips between his teeth. Without so much as glancing at the doctor, Carnacki took a long, deep breath. His fingertips tapped against the precipices of his armrests. He then proceeded. 
It seems the confectioner's daughter, Abigail, had purchased a clay cup in one of the local shops. I learned that it was one of those this-that-and-a-bit-of-everything-else shops. Tracing the item's provenance, if you take my meaning, would be nigh impossible. Now what was disconcerting in regard to this otherwise ordinary cup was that it would flip itself over each night. Or rather, it would be flipped over by an invisible hand. Yes, set it properly in the day, and it would be topsy-turvy the next morning. Be it seashells or coins or whatever else a girl might wish to keep in there, the contents would be discovered spilled around the flipped cup at sunrise. Karnacki turned to Watson. The doctor nodded, his eyes wide and his jaw clenched. A child's prank, you wonder, continued our host. One pulled by Abigail's younger brother, Abbott. The father explained he had tested this theory by placing the cup far above the lad's reach, above the girl's reach, too. Still, the cup was found flipped at dawn. What if one bid a good night to the cup topside down? Well, even so, it would be found topside right before the lava bread, bacon, and cockles were served. Curious, yes, but not quite extraordinary enough to entice me to arrange a rail journey that far. Ah, but that was only the core of what Mr. Nicholas related to me in his letter. I was not the first he had contacted for consultation. No, he had consulted with another detective prior to myself. You see, when one looks beyond those cases for which ghosts need not apply... One finds a choice of consulting detectives rather than a solitary figure in all the world. With a single motion, Karnacki's head dropped forward and swung to the side, and he again scowled at Watson. The doctor remained tight-mouthed and nodded once again. Our host gradually resumed his former position. I do not know if you have ever heard of a psychical investigator by the name of Taxman Bellow devilish-looking bloke, a brow dominated by a large, bony protuberance in the shape of a horizontal or upward crescent, its two horns at the high points of his hairline and the lowest point of the curve, balanced atop an impossibly sharp nose. Red-rimmed eyes glisten deep beneath that unsettling forehead. A rather wispy beard kept in the style called a Van Dyke on the continent. I've known Bellow mostly by reputation, though our paths have crossed twice before. I confess my pride was slightly wounded by Nicholas contacting him about the flipping cup first, yet I was also pleased that shortly afterward the Welshman requested that I perform an evaluation of Bellow's work. Do you follow me? Isn't it phrased, seeking a second opinion in the medical profession? Dr. Watson became a marble statue of himself. Before you judge me as prideful, let me say that my decision to then accept the case was not the opportunity in itself to overrule Bellow. No, it was the wild disproportion between the manifestation, that girl's nocturnally cartwheeling clay cup, and Bellow's prescription for it. You see, gentlemen, after his investigation, Bellow advised the confectioner to destroy his humble house, to tear it down timber by timber, Raise the dwelling, and the malevolent thing assuredly would be forever banished, so advised Bellow. This psychical Satan even went so far as presenting Mr. Nicholas with the business card of a demolition service. 
The card featured a slogan boasting that the company can bring any building down to earth for a down-to-earth price. Whilst my correspondent says he appreciated the wordplay, he adds he could not help but be struck by the name of the company proprietor, Sid Bellow. Even a confectioner has enough detective skill to uncover, as did Mr. Nicholas, a very significant fact. As it turns out, Sid Bellow is Taxman Bellow's own brother. Yes, the Bellow boys were clearly working a confidence game, a flim-flam scheme. Yet that was the crown adorning the central and still supernatural mystery who or what was flipping Abigail's cup in the wee hours of the night. I caught the next train westward. Upon detraining in Carmarthen, I had my baggage sent to the boar's head and called upon Mr. Nicholas at his wonderful shop. Gentlemen, we waste our time here on brandy and cigars. At our next gathering, what do you say we feast on marzipan, clove rocks, licorice all sorts, jelly babies, toffee, and bonbons? Or do I digress? I had arrived late enough that Mr. Nicholas was able to close the shop, and we took the twenty-minute stroll to his house. He had under his wing eight-year-old Abigail, and little Abbott, aged about five or so, for the mother was away, caring for her sickly mother up in Aberystwyth. Upon our arrival I noted the house was a small one, virtually a cottage. Though not made of gingerbread, as I contend a candy-maker's domicile ought to be, it was a darling house. Bellow's prescription to raise it made me grind my teeth. I first asked to examine the cup, ordinary in almost every respect. I found, though, a short sentence or phrase scratched into its bottom, presumably when the clay was still wet. I recognize the language as a Slavic one, but, as you know, I study only dead languages. Neither did Mr. Nicholas have a translation. Therefore, I copied the carved message. Here Karnaki withdrew a slip of paper from his vest pocket and held it toward Arkwright. He explained, I know you spent some months in Prague. Would you see what you can make of it? Arkwright grinned, accepted the scrap, and twisted to read it under the nearest light fixture. He raised a finger to indicate he needed a few moments. My initial thought, proceeded Karnacki, was that this inscription in the cup was probably unrelated to the case, and this was proven correct by the next morning. You see, I knew I would have to remain awake the entire night with the cup under constant scrutiny. Mr. Nicholas informed me he had considered such a plan, but then decided against pursuing it because of the trivial nature of the haunting, if that's even the proper term. The cup flipping is trivial, I told him, yet I do not know what agent makes it happen. More importantly, I do not know how my presence might infuriate this agent. To be sure, I brought the materials to create a protective barrier between myself and that unknown. You are welcome to join me within the barrier, but there are two children in the house. Is there a neighbor with whom they might stay? Oh, he said, they'd love this adventure. Is the barrier large enough for them to join us? <laughs> I was taken aback by the father's wish to include his children, and I would have redoubled my position on their safety. However, I myself had left my electric pentangle at home on the assumption that the situation did not merit the burden of carrying it. I consented to this nocturnal family picnic. 
You will see whether or not I should have insisted on Abigail and Abbott remaining elsewhere. There was nothing more I could do at this point, so I ambled to the boar's head. All through dinner I pondered the case. Presumably, Taxman Bellow was using his knowledge of occult forces, not to battle against their incursions into our realm, but to summon them on some small scale. He would direct that force into the victim's house, next introducing himself as an impartial expert on such matters and performing a cursory investigation he would then recommend his brother's demolition company as the best solution who knows how many victims he had already duped how many more would there be if i did not intercede to stop his chicanery i knew i must connect the cops flipping to him or his brother again i thought about those children Keeping them safe was, of course, crucial, but keeping them out of the way would be another factor complicating my plan. Well, around nine o'clock I gathered my materials and returned to the Nicholas home. To allow space for the barrier, we removed the children's bedroom furnishings to another area. Of course, we left the shelves on which Abigail kept her cup. The two tykes looked on with fascination as, in the center of the room, I measured out a space. I swept it with a broom of hyssop. About this I drew a circle of chalk and then smudged with a bunch of garlic a broad belt right around the chalk circle. I took a jar of a certain water, and wetting my left forefinger, I followed the circle again, making upon the floor, just within the line of chalk, the second sign of the Sama ritual. After that, I drew a pentangle, so that each of the five points of the defensive star touched the chalk circle. So on and so forth. It's true that I would have preferred the superior protection afforded by my electric pentangle, but I knew that, so long as Mr. Nicholas and his children remained within the borders of this centuries-old design, it would protect us as it had protected me in the past. That is, with the exception of that business of the moving fur, can't say as it worked terribly well in that case. At this point, I observed that Watson's eyes appeared almost as if pushed forward by an inflating brain. As he shifted forward in his chair, his mouth opened and closed, opened and closed, like that of a fish tossed upon the shore. Yet, in keeping with that simile, no sound was emitted. All at once the doctor collapsed backward, rescued by the chair's back and arms. Carnacki must not have noticed this. His tale progressed uninterrupted. It was half-past ten when all was prepared, and the children were already sleepily nestled in blankets. I entertained them by narrating my experience with the possessed puffins of Pembroke. As you know, in that case I uncovered the handiwork of two devious girls about Abigail's age. They had used illustrations cut from a storybook and positioned with hatpins to create the deception that a parade of entranced puffins were threatening the residents in that town. My narration had the desired effect of putting both children to sleep, the very effect it had upon one or two of you gentlemen, I recall. Even the confectioner's head had slumped forward a few times when I spotted a small but elongated shadow cast by the light of the candles. At first I took it for that of a rat, for it was roughly that size. I focused my gaze and followed the shadow to the thing that cast it. 
I grabbed Mr. Nicholas's arm when I saw that instead of a rat having entered the room, it was some sort of ghastly hybrid. It was comprised of the head of a small monkey, if I had to guess a macaque, the russet arms of a squirrel, the yellow legs of a sandpiper, and the green rippled abdomen of a wasp. You follow me, don't you? Of course, the proportions were adjusted to fit with a creature that was no more than six or seven inches long from snout to stinger. Well, that's a sorry-looking hedgehog, jibed Mr. Nicholas in a whisper, but small enough to slip through our coal chute. Do you think Bello trained it to squeeze inside and flip the cup? I think Bello conjured it to squeeze inside and flip the cup. You won't find one of those at the Natural History Museum. Now let's make certain the cup is its target. The hybrid was clearly aware of our presence, and if something with a sandpiper's legs and feet could be said to tiptoe, it did so while keeping its monkey face angled just so to keep us within its peripheral vision. Yes, it was approaching the shelves. It began to climb with unexpected dexterity. The hybrid had descended halfway when I discovered Mr. Nicholas had apparently nudged his daughter awake to see the marvel. You stop toppling my treasures, Abigail demanded. She quickly stood and began stomping toward the hybrid, clapping her hands as if the abomination were a kitten about to knock over a milk bottle. Stay within the circle, I roared. The father also stood to reprimand the girl. Abigail, you get back here this instant. He then started toward his daughter, also stepping beyond the barrier. The freakish hybrid began emitting a steady, piercing squeal that wasn't so much horrifying as it was very annoying. Before order could be regained, the boy was up and chasing the hybrid and endeavoring to swat it with my broom of hyssop. Mr. Nicholas shifted his chase toward his son while his daughter resumed her clapping after the hybrid. Its sandpiper legs, however, proved too agile, and the ugly thing rather impressively rounded the protective barrier twice, deftly circumnavigating the veritable clog dance being performed in that room before finding its escape through the door. Again I spied Watson's reaction. He formed his mouth into an O, and then exhaled pointedly. I wondered if this had been to expel great tension or greater bewilderment. Here was my opportunity, said Carnacki. I was convinced the hybrid would now return to Taxman Bellow, its master. If I could track it back to that scoundrel, I would have the evidence needed to at least coerce him to halt his underhanded tricks. But were the entire Nicholas family to join me, there would have been far too many stomping feet with which to contend. I implored them to remain there. I then rushed to the back entrance, somehow managing to light a lantern along the way. I arrived in time to behold the now-trembling hybrid do exactly as Mr. Nicholas had anticipated. It exited through the coal chute. From there it was fairly easy work to follow the frazzled creature— the lantern and the moonlight were my dedicated assistants that night. The assemblage of disparate species occasionally spun back to stare at me, but with a twitch it turned forward again and recommenced its trek. Honestly, I was tempted to pick up the little beggar and let it ride perched on my shoulder, but I did not know its path home. 
Eventually we came upon a barn. The hybrid scurried into it through a small gap between its double doors. The same gap revealed light within. I furtively approached. Enough space existed between the doors for me to peer through it. My eyes and nose told me that no livestock occupied the barn. Its stables were empty, but a lone figure sat on a hay bale. Yes, there he was. It was Taxman Bellow. When he rose at the appearance of the creature, I saw he wore a costume that in an earlier century would have signified a wizard or an alchemist. On closer examination afterward, the apparel proved to be merely a man's old-fashioned sleeping gown and cap, dyed indigo and embroidered with gold stars and moons. To complete the picture, he held a hefty leather-bound tome, which I took to be a grimoire, or similar book of incantations. With a knowing eagerness, the hybrid scurried to the center of a circle, which was about eleven feet in diameter, and bordered with a powdery substance that I assumed to be salt. Subsequent investigation also determined the substance to be sugar, not salt, perhaps somehow related to Mr. Nicholas's trade. However, this was no ring of protection. Instead, it was to serve as a passageway, a port window, if you will, through which the hybrid came and went from its own unknown realm. Do you understand? By Jove, I shuddered to imagine what greater monstrosities might intrude into our world by repeatedly opening such a passageway. Once the hybrid had taken its position in the center of the circle, Bellow stepped to the sweet edge, spread his feet wide, and opened the book. I knew I must act swiftly and stealthily if I were to prevent him from ever again using this dangerous practice in his confidence games. To my advantage, Bellow's face was buried in his book and he stood at an angle that allowed me to slip through the double doors and sidle my way toward him. As his incantation began, I saw the ground within his circle begin to lighten in color as silver-white tendrils branched from the edges toward the middle. I'm tempted to say the inside of the circle was freezing, for the spreading line suggested as much. However, those tendrils were forming shapes almost perfectly triangular. These triangles then began to raise or lower in relation to one another. Each strand of straw scattered on this ground likewise was part of this geometric segmentation. In other words, Bella was not fracturing the soil, not the ground alone. No, he was carefully cracking open this patch of reality. As to the incantation itself, I can say little. It was comprised not of crisp syllables, but of sustained consonants. A buzzed J, a hissed S, an irritated N. As Bellow read the sounds aloud, the hybrid seemed quite content to be jerked and jostled up and down upon its triangle. By this time, a plan was formulating in my mind. I was almost behind Bellow now, and I assure you that I was moving as silently as possible. Bellow chanted, Welcome, Karnaki. I've been expecting you. I halted. 
bellow twisted toward me. You've arrived in time to see something of interest, I think. He resumed his former position. The demon-faced huckster snapped his fingers, though I suspect that was mere theatrics. At that very instant, the circle of triangles behind him accelerated their vertical oscillation and indeed began to tilt and collide and collapse downward. Imagine attempting to lift a completed jigsaw puzzle by the sides and failing to keep the interlocked pieces together. Then you'll have an idea of what I witnessed. The hybrid's monkey eyes widened and its squirrel arms began to flail. Still the sandpiper legs and wasp-like abdomen remained steadfast as the beast plummeted amidst the crumbling triangles. Bellow again addressed me. Now comes the truly remarkable... Karnaki, what are you... No! I had taken my single chance. Having twisted my arms into bellows and managing to wrench free the leather grimoire, I sent it hurling into the void left by the falling triangles. Indeed, the ordinary bare hay-strewn floor of the barn was already returning. The entire phenomenon of resealing the passageway occurred noiselessly. All we heard was the hybrid's familiar scream, followed by a very wet squish. You, you killed it with the book. It landed on poor little Scamper. You lout. I assure you, Bello, it wasn't my intention to... Hold on. You named it? He turned to gaze at the center of the sugar circle, now fully replaced by the dirt floor. Reverently, Bello removed his mock wizard cap. Poor little Scamper, he muttered. Never harmed a soul. What was it exactly? With a sudden burst of enthusiasm, Bello explained, An elemental, you know, something like a fairy or a gnome. I summoned it. It was easy to train. I almost think it had clairvoyant abilities. Mind you, its abilities were markedly limited otherwise due to his physiology. I had hoped to accomplish more with Scamper, but, you know, the cards you're dealt and all that. I joined him in staring at the spot we had last seen Scamper. So not really a hybrid, per se. No, it just looked that way. And why not simply keep it here? I assume you could have used it in future flimflams with victims less shrewd than Mr. Nicholas. I had to summon it each night and send it back each night. Couldn't figure out what defeated in this realm. I nodded. After a moment, I asked, But why, Bello, by Jove, why this elaborate scheme to bamboozle people into using your brother's demolition service? Why abandon occult investigation for this... This occult tomfoolery. Bellow strolled over to his seat on the hay bale. I joined him on one nearby. Where's the reward, Karnaki? Where's the reward in occult investigation? Think of the dangers we face. For what? Now, when I say reward, I don't mean payment. If I'd wanted a more steady income, I'd have done as my father urged me and played the trombone. And I certainly don't mean fame or glory, but some simple appreciation would be nice. Do you follow me? Someone to share my adventures, perhaps, and to compliment my triumphs now and then. But again, the terrible danger of the job. 
When it's occult investigation, Tweedledum must go it alone. Again, I turned to Watson. He must have caught my eye, for he looked back, pursed his lips, and shrugged. I won't say, continued Carnacki, that I entirely understood what had occasioned Bellow to sink as low as he had, but I must say that I recognized it was not driven by evil. Somehow his devilish features seemed to soften that night, and he held no animosity toward me for having banished his grimoire into that other realm. He might even have been somewhat relieved. To be sure, as I checked out of the boar's head the next day, I found the chap had left me an envelope. No doubt he had seen me there, probably when I was dining, and that explains how he knew I was in Carmarthen. I found only one thing inside the envelope— a bone. I couldn't identify it, possibly one from a hog. I pondered the meaning of this on the train trip back east. The Sigsan manuscript cites curses delivered via the touch of the bone of the beast, but this contradicted the mood in which I had left Bellow. Finally it hit me. Musicians often refer to the trombone as a bone and this must have been Bellow's way to tell me that he would pursue a career with this instrument. A happy ending, then, don't you agree? At this point, Carnacki stood. In his usual, ingenial fashion, he added, Out you go! Oh, Dr. Watson, if you would be good enough to remain for a moment. With the usual, ingenial three, I exited to the embankment, where we shared grins rather than conversation. I believe we were pleased to have heard a different kind of tale from Carnacki, whose narrations are so often woven together with a taut yarn of life-threatening consequence. None of us expressed this aloud, however, so the quiet might simply have come from a mutual desire to wait and hear what Carnacki had to say to Watson, and it was not long before he joined us. The doctor winked. He only wanted to apologize for being snappish with me. I assured him I'm accustomed to dealing with worse. I didn't mention, though, that I'm not fully convinced that the business with the bone signaled a happy ending. This bellow chap is, after all, a confidence man, one with preternatural powers. What if the other theory, the curse completed by touching the bone, were closer to the mark? That would be most unsettling, replied Taylor, but I'm inclined to think that Carnacki followed the Sing Sand manuscript in deflecting any such curse, and he might have made up that stuff about trombones for the sake of the story. Still, am I the only one who noticed that our host neglected the Slavic message scratched into the bottom of the Welsh girl's cup? Arkwright, were you able to translate it? Oh, I, I gleaned the gist. Sorry to disappoint, but Carnacki was correct in surmising that there's no grand revelation there. The bottom of the cup says something to the effect of, Let no one but the owner drink from this cup, for the owner is, and here I'm at a loss. The owner is someone named Baba Yaga. The five of us shared a hearty laugh. Baba Yaga, repeated Watson, retrieving a handkerchief to dab a mirthful tear from his eye. Why, it sounds like a baby's babbling. <laughs> Chuckling once more, we shook hands and departed for our homes. And there you have the least haunted house 
in Wales, written by Tim Prossel, whoever that is. Now, if you don't know who Baba Yaga is, she's somebody you might want to look up. It's spelled B-A-B-A-Y-A-G-A, Baba Yaga. All I'll say is that little Abigail Nicholas probably doesn't want to drink from that cup, because Baba Yaga is a witch with a bad habit of eating children. She's a figure from Slavic folklore. The occult detective, like Karnacki, is a figure from literary fiction, an archetypal character. And if you're interested in that kind of character, why not visit brombonesbooks.com. There you can find what's called the Chronological Bibliography of Early Occult Detectives. This is a project that I've been working on for years and years, and I've been tracing the history of this kind of character. It goes way back, farther back than I expected, and and I think a lot of people will be surprised by how far it goes back. To get there, you go to brombonesbooks.com, look on the menu for a tab titled For Fun and Edification. That should take you directly to the Chronological Bibliography of Early Occult Detectives. Once again, it's at brownbonesbooks.com. I'm Tim Prossel. Thank you very much for listening.